Friday, 8.39 GMT-8. Pity makes pride, hate breeds hatefulness, and in the end, both are poisons. Answer's ride from Portland to Tacoma is smooth and uneventful. He loves this part of the country in winter. There is a sense of chance that lingers here along the increasingly degraded interstate in the low wetland fog and dense greenery set against the rise of the Cascades. Despite the rampant urban tumble of organic life along the road, this place retains a sense that if the world as we know it turned to nothing tomorrow, the rate of reversion to nature would be sensational. Not much of a drive by some standards. Even after three decades of neglect, the road lets you make it in just under three hours if you slug along at the speed limit. Having to leave the bread truck behind was an annoyance, but one he'd planned on when this began. He'd stolen a sedan from the long-term parking lot of the airport a day earlier and planted it at a parking structure downtown. Por si acaso. Just in case. He drives with the windows down unless it's raining, which seems to be less and less frequent nowadays. Change is real, he noticed to himself. Real. For now, it is enough to glory in the saturated air of the Northwest. During the short trip, he maintains a deliberate distance from the growing list of questions swimming in the sea of his subconscious, offhandedly reviewing the job just aborted. A faithful gut rumbles, he's been lucky. He also knows it's possible some of the others weren't. From now, there's a number of pressing things to accomplish, so he stays focused on the one immediate objective, getting away. Friday 904 GMT-8. Following her early morning visit to the contact, three jumped on the first available Ekatai offsite, and after a long, fast drive, arrives in her new home away from home, buried in some old-growth activist site deep in the Matoll Nation. Exactly where is not important to three, known commonly as half, a name derived from the fact that she's right about things more or less 50% of the time. She's mostly interested in getting lost and being clean out of touch for a good long while. Once her ad hoc crew's crummy leaves the reasonably consistent surface of the county road, their truck shakes a sharp right and bounces off along the dirt track, up a deep defile, and finally out along a narrow-hipped ridge road that allows killer vistas of quilly forest lands dropping directly onto the shimmering foil of Pacific off in the distance. Half gazes out the window, savoring what is likely to be her last view, at least for a while, of Mother Ocean. This crew is on its way to take a treetop sit action, which suits her fine, but means looking at nothing but bark and branches for the wind-blown duration. After an hour jouncing along the forest track, they veer off and run a couple miles on an unhealed scar of an ancient skid road. Every sweat-foul person in the dually's cab braces against the rib-torquing whip of heavy ruts, an ass-bruising washboard. After a few minutes, the truck grinds to a stop. Last stop, the driver shouts. Not much a walk from here into Matoll. There are snickers from those in the truck familiar with the terrain. They know that the driver's use of the word walk is inappropriate in the extreme. This part of the woods has stayed old growth for a reason. It's notoriously inaccessibility and choss pile steepness. It's likely they'll be walking several ridges back into the forest meaning elevation changes of well over a thousand meters each. So what, half muses, time is a practical irrelevance here. Y'all grab packs and climbing racks from the stash in the rear, the driver bellows, collapsing into a fit of coughing. <laughs> Fucking pollen, 
and gasps. Get yourselves organized. We'll head out in five. Piling out, each grabs a rucksack with food and water, as well as a large sling with carabiners, ascenders, rope, and various other bits and pieces tailored to the job of climbing and inhabiting the world's tallest trees. The nation's tree crime communities have become famous almost everywhere for their ingenuity and climbing prowess. Half has been in the same area with a different group a few years back. She knows the drill and shrugs the pack onto her shoulders. What she's decidedly not looking forward to is the awkward seasickness she comes down with every time her first night in the canopy. It's embarrassing, hard to keep to yourself, and generally makes you look like a cookie-hurling rookie. Just handling the hike, though, should shine up her cred with this little clan. The driver rolls up on the bunch of them. Everybody set? He squints, nods of agreement. All right, let's hit it. He moves off at a decent clip, ambling toward a tunnel-like gap in the dark wall of forest. Trailing behind the group follows to a trailhead, carved into the undergrowth, where they step into midday darkness. Friday, 10.48 GMT minus 8. Tacoma doesn't need a sign to announce itself. A total stranger to the state of Washington would know that they were within the bounds of Pulp City's limits simply by inhaling the stench that burps old hairy yellow plumes from the countless stacks and relief pipes before setting a vast pall of acid gloom over the town. Answer wheels off the slag of interstate and winds down trash-driven streets to the port district. He rolls through the social compost to company town housing, sold off long ago to the lowest bidder, and now offering shabby restroom-quality shelter from the inclement weather to those who cannot afford to go elsewhere. No one who doesn't belong. The impoverished, their creditors, thugs, low-caste drug leeches, out-of-bracket hookers, and cum-line cops spend much time outside their car here unless they place a low value on their goods, their respiratory tract, or their life. Answer doesn't judge. It is, he reflects, nothing more than the everlasting cycle of change undergone relentlessly by all human communities, this one or others. Behind that superficial appraisal, he feels the abdominal clutch of cultural lament caused by the stench of suffering as one epoch's demise feeds the rise of the next. He slides through a warehouse district, the face of which hasn't changed since the days when production of pulp, timber, not hemp, fueled the region's economy. Dockside, a seemingly infinite number of low-draft freighters awaiting the wrecker's torch wallow and rust in the mud shallows of the reeking inlet. Answer eases to a halt alongside a warpy chain-link fence, to which is wired a barely legible red sign that reads axle and dashes. Beyond, a tetanus-edge wrecking yard stains 40 acres of the bay flats. Anything that used to roll, float, or fly could find its final resting place here among the carcasses of industrial exhaustion waiting to be sliced, diced, and shipped to Korean scrap melters where the miracle of conversion by fire will ensure their subsequent reincarnation as consumer goods. Just inside the lazy hinged gate stands an office. It is composed of three 40-foot containers welded together and raised on steel posts 20 feet in the air. The vast, uneven swings of the change demand that even temporary structures are built with adaptation in mind. Answer climbs the stairs, leans through the scrap of door, and approaches the desk. Here to see the little mic. The grease-embalmed young man crafting what looks like an invoice on an ancient typewriter looks up. 
Love that in, he mumbles absently as he bends the spit into a paint bucket. Back in a while, man, but not him now. Then, as afterthought, big hair, though. Want to see big? Answer nods agreement to the suggestion as the counterman picks up the microphone. He looks the answer up and down and says, what's the name? Name's Ipe, answered grins. Ben Ipe. The call goes out, and while he waits, answer proves an old copy of International Cargo Handler, whose cover story is all about the massive infrastructure investment at the new transloading facility down in Guantanamo Bay, and now they're having to be armored against unexpectedly high rates of sea level rise. All downhill after Fidel, shakes his head. Man, all downhill. Ape, who the hell? The annoying, swinging voice is twice the size of the four-foot-tall man that owns it. I'll be goddamn, a smile takes the place of confusion as he recognizes the answer. How are you, friend? What the hell are you doing here in Shitsville, USA? Step on into my office here and fill me in on the details of your goddamn life, boy. Half an hour and two beers apiece later, the men saunter out of Big Mike's office and make their way down to a van parked under the building. Answer hunkers in the back as Mike maneuvers through the industrial wasteland that is the Port Authority. We'll take care of the car this afternoon, son. He winks at his passenger in the rear view. Before you catch a nap, that thing will be pocketized in 17 different countries, no? Stopping in front of a shack that genuflects in the general direction of a gray oil slick of bay, as if water was the source of gravity, Mike says, You stay put here for half an hour? Maybe an hour and a half? They'll come for you. He turns in the driver's seat and speaks directly to answer. Whoever set this contract, you're trying to get out from under a dirty pal. All over. And if they come here... I don't want to have to tell him you were here, right? Because I only got this one ass, and though I myself would say it was a sorry excuse, it's still mine. So I'll tell him everything but what I don't know. That's why Lil's going to come and set you up from here. We don't talk much nowadays, know what I'm saying? You just keep quiet here and don't let nobody see your face. Answer nods, then ducks out the door and into the waterfront shack as Big Mike drives away. Friday, 11, 12, GMT minus 8. Coordinator doesn't have much use for sleep when she's working. Meditation plus medication equals function. It's no formula for awakening, but it serves as a hands-on recipe for making sure you're still on your feet after everybody else is stacked. She pops a bitter little freshener into her mouth, good for another 10 hours. The driver isn't talky. Coordinator's glad. Gosswright gave her a female driver. She believes that women are always preferable when it comes to long trips. Men seem to get nervous with extended periods of silence, always wanting to chat you up, whereas women will generally take her cue from the passenger. If the ride keeps quiet, the driver sees no reason to get windy. I want to thank you for going off circuit with me without posting your dispatcher, coordinator says to the cabbie. The young woman offers a sideways grin to the mirror. Well, I have to say, that $1,000 tip you put down on our way out of town helped me get over my nervousness about pulling the plug on the office in record time. What was that little thing you did to the mag car? Her brow wrinkles genuine curiosity, mixed with admiration. You renamed the taxi so the in-lane identifier thinks for some other car, didn't you? Pretty trick. Coordinator is pleased to be in the company of an intelligent and observant young person. A little electronic sleight of hand, and the cab becomes a limousine. There's something wonderful and open about cabbie culture. 
The drivers are all motivated by different things. Some want to be alone so they can drink unchallenged. Some like to read porn or prayer books or do their studies so they can advance in their education and get out of this line of work. Maybe some are just loners who see the whole of random passengers as pages in an immense voyeuristic journal. Then too, there's freedom from supervision. Despite digital video tracers, data-dredging drones, stickies, and magnetic tags keeping tabs on everyone, it is sometimes still possible to slip out of the disciplined flow of civil society, melting into the aloneness of driving strangers to destinations that change like a living lottery. Coordinator glances at the driver's hopeful young face in the rear view, hoping that this little diversion from routine doesn't have life-threatening consequences for someone who's probably just interested in an infusion of a little illicit cash. She looks back to the southeast, taking in the last vestiges of Rainier's mass looming out of the low mist, its perpetual snow cap luminescing in the late morning sun. Rain clouds stand off the coast, and a brisk wind sighs the bullhead-infested grasslands, meeting out punishing cold to the smattering of dairy cattle that browse on the browned-out agricultural median that floats like history's bookmark between highway and housing developments. It is, she feels, like a stringy, debris-cluttered reminder of an older incarnation of the Northwest. Over the past couple decades, Anacortes has matured from a traditional fishing destination and getaway for investment bankers' holiday to being the regional hub of old-line money and transport. As the change becomes more severe, the San Juans have become more heavily inhabited, Sure, the meter-plus sea level rise in 20 years instead of the predicted 100 wiped out a trillion dollars in waterfront property value, and it was a shock to some lunkheads somewhere when the general population just plain refused to pony up tax dollars to defend property belonging to the richest one-tenth of the population, so their investments wouldn't literally go underwater. Still, the big money, the smart money, just moved uphill or inland and got better transportation. So now... What with the people of metropolitan means putting ever-increasing premium on separation between where they live and the industrial squalor of those zones producing their income, the sweet spot of the island chain was even more desirable. To accommodate an ever-growing demand for restricted but quality access, the steam of hydrofoils passing between Lopez, Shaw, Orcas, San Juan, and Victoria is almost incessant, running every half hour, 24-7. The cab pulls up to the ferry terminal. Coordinator picks up her bags and leans down to thank her driver. Here, she extends a thumb-sized plastic tab. Pass this through your credit reader, and it will adjust the mileage gauge, minder, and upkeep files to show you only put on about 50 clicks last night. It'll also restore your VIN identity and puke your comm system, so your dispatcher won't be able to say you deliberately kept out of touch. Tell him you got hooked up all night with a working girl. And her John. Coordinator reaches out and hands over a small stack of receipts and a date book, as well as another thousand in cash. Safety and anonymity are always worth the money. Say they left this material in the cab, and if you need to, tell them they paid you this thousand not to phone in. She looks the younger woman in the eye. That way, if your boss rips you for this cash, you're still good, right? She starts to walk away, then turns back and bends over to the window again. A last word, by the way, I'd appreciate it if you remember me as a man, yeah? And if your boss doesn't need to be greased, you go ahead and keep the extra green. Thanks again.
Friday, 1229 GMT-8. There's only one other woman on the hike, and she and Half have fallen into step together over the past couple hours. She's breathing quite heavily as they approach their third ridgeline in the morning. The rest of the crew has gotten there ahead of them, and they're all taking a water break. It is a welcome stop. Half pulls out a bottle and takes a long swig. The driver speaks up. All right, folks, you'll be glad to hear it's all down here from here. We'll be in camp before you know it. Just another half mile or so. Heading down the trail, they soon come to a large clearing on the west-facing shoulder of the hill. The driver drops his pack and pulls the sling off his shoulder. Okay, we go up here. Take a quick break before you all get started. I want everybody in climbing pairs. Half nods in the other woman's direction. You up for this, she asks. The woman nods a bit reluctantly. If you're willing to take a risk, we can team. This is my first time. I mean, I've trained and everything, but I'm sure it's different. You know, actually being up there, half flicks a knowing smile. Yeah, it's different. That's true. Don't worry, though. I'll stick with you. The other woman breaks into a grateful smile. Once they're both cinched into the harnesses, they sling their racks over one shoulder and walk to the rope that's hanging from some unseen support in the canopy a hundred meters above. Just take it easy, half advisor's your new friend. Watch your pace. Try not to look down. The other woman nods slightly as she fixes her jumar onto a rope. Half grabs an adjacent line and hooks on. Once her harness is clipped into the ascender's metal loop, she slings one foot into the piece of webbing hanging down. Pressing down with that boot, she slides the metal bracket of the jumar up at the next one and begins the climb. Midway up the trunk, she's past her partner and stops to look back finding her climbing along well enough about two meters below. You doing okay? I'm fine, the woman shouts up. No worries. I was a little freaked at first, but now I'll make it. Half gazes around, taking in the damp shock of high canopy redwood forest. It's the shape of life, a molten green expanse that shows complete indifference to whether you live in it or rot in it. Another few minutes, and Half reaches a surprisingly large and formidable platform, she mantles onto it, unclipping her harness from the jumar, climbing onto the rope and reclining into a safety leash that runs from the trunk. She is, for the moment, alone. Other crew members have reached this point and already moved off, transiting the elevated multi-lane roadways that radiate out towards tr other trees in the mother circle. Light wind draws a low moan from wavering treetops. She is reminded of Ulysses, passing the sirens. Each walkway is a loose triangular sequence of three coiled metal lines, one for the feet, one for each hand strung up at shoulder height. The network in this grove is extensive. Folks have been up here on and off for a long time, 60 years maybe. Half's climbing partner reaches the base of the platform and she walks over to help her up. How you doing, she asks. The other woman is slightly out of breath, but seems more comfortable for the moment to be standing on something solid, even if the solid thing is itself anchored 100 meters above the earth to a swaying tree. I'll be okay in a minute. Let me get a quick rest. Half walks around the trunk and is surprised to find there's still one other person on the platform, the driver. He's flipping onto a cable walk, heading more or less to the west. Anywhere in particular you want us? Say it yourself, he shrugs. For me, the north of the grove is the sweetest. It's basically up to you. You know the drill. There'll be a meet and greet this afternoon to go over the mission. See you later. Half nods as she watches him finish clipping a second quick draw on the left-hand cable. He gives her a mock salute and starts walking off. 
the clinking of his carabiner against the metal cable, suggestive of a rock rolling down a dry stream bed. Back around the trunk, the other woman, Helen Wright, is drinking some water and rearranging her pack, putting various items into a pouch slung around her waist. About ready, half ass? Look, I hate to be a pain, the other woman says, but cable walking is new to me. I'd really appreciate it if you'd keep a bit ahead just so I can watch you. No problem, half replies, thinking at least I won't have to watch you wobble your ass across the line. You want to watch your center of gravity. To be honest, if you're clipped in properly, this is the safest thing you'll do while you're up here. Safer than sleeping, really. She pulls a couple of quick draws off her sling and clips them to nylon loops on either side of her harness. Puts on her pack, shoulders the slings once again, walking over to the north-facing cable walk. Maybe the driver is right. Friday, 1304 GMT-8. Answer shifts under the tarp, trying to get comfortable. He flexes his feet and plants his shoulder in the stack of life vests piled on the pilot house bench. Eight to twelve foot swells shuttle the small boat between peaks and valleys. Still, there's no wind to speak of. That's lucky. This bit of work would be a lot nastier with wind. He checks his head mount compass and scans the horizon. Not much longer. Closing his eyes, he waits to see what reveals itself. There are many shapes adrift on the black field of his inner vision. A darker panel swells. Momentarily, lines of yellow text glow into life on the otherwise empty blue-black field. He dismisses script as a distraction and keeps seeking. On the left edge of his field, a rust-hued line slides down to the south. Coming. Now coming. When little Mike squatted down to ease through the door as he was leaving the harbor shack, he told Answer, Listen, bud, the truck will be here soon. He's going to park in the yard across the way, tosses his head in the direction of a lot full of freight containers. You get into that container while it's sitting there, right? There's a compartment at the back. Squeeze your sorry ass in, put on the oxygen, and sit tight. They'll load you in and seal it. You're gone. Moonlike, his enormous face broke into a strain of wicked, toothy smile. Nobody looking for immigrants where you're headed, bro. Wrong direction entirely. Plenty of air, water, and food, bed and shit in there. I even threw in some ancient discs and such, so you don't go shacky. Should take 11 days, more or less, till you're out. Other side's covered, too. He pulls back, raising himself up to his full seven-foot height, and steps under the roadway, bending at the waist to say, Don't know what you're into, bro, but it gotta be serious biz if you're running. Not like you, man. Don't generally play that runaway thing. Though, I gotta tell you, you're adjusting to it real good. He shakes his head as he mounts the steps, strides over his rig, and slides behind the wheel of his record, muttering him to himself, it must be some nasty shit. Nasty shit indeed. That is exactly why I answer is 70 miles out to sea in a freshly stolen fishing boat. Fear of nasty shit. The worry is always there. Everyone can be gotten to. Compromised, tormented into giving up what they've been entrusted with. They said as much. Expected to cooperate without a lot of fuss. And for that simple reason, Answer crawled into the container and sat until it got picked up. He waited another two hours until dockside lumpers crammed it full of legitimate cargo and craned it onto a stack of other containers fastened to the upper deck of a freighter with a belly full of scrap metal, automotive parts, and timber heading to Malaysia. It took exactly 46 minutes to cut his way through the steel box wall 
with a cartridge-loaded welding rig in his bag. The convenience of an oxygen mask was something he was very thankful for. The smoke inside the box was fierce. Besides, the spares let him keep his own in reserve. Anyway, this little extra service cost him six Gs. Exactly two hours and 46 minutes after slipping into the transport box, he'd paid for the pleasure of using. Answer breaststroked up to a wharf piling and heaved his shivering body out of the toxic wetness of the harbor waters. Now, he thought, let those boys leak all they want. Once again, his trail was cold, just the way he liked it. Friday, 1348 GMT-8. Half clips quick draws onto either cable at arm height and begins navigating slowly across the aerial walkway. After about 10 meters of carefully placing one foot in front of the other, she turns to check her partner's progress. As her head swivels, she feels the cable under her left hand vibrate ominously and then, unbelievably, yank itself clean out of her hand. It seems to have snapped, with the now loose end pulling at a dangerous speed through her quick draw right in front of her eyes. Lurching to the right, she fights to muster the core strength necessary to stabilize herself on two points. Falling free, the cable swings toward the far tree, twisting and seeing in the calm afternoon mist. She latches on to the remaining handrail with her left hand and raises her voice to warn her climbing partner. Half catches sight of the other woman. She is not on the wire. She is back on the platform and spraying the remaining hand cable with a can of some sort of gas. Whatever that shit is, it's suddenly and brutally clear to half that it is what caused the other cable to fail. Incredulous, she realizes the other woman is cutting the cables. Motherfucker's trying to kill me. Half simultaneously yanks the ascender from her rack and snaps it to the front of her harness as she unhooks her remaining quick draw from the single handrail and just drops. Catching the bottom cable with both hands and feet, she swings immediately upside down, hanging like a monkey from a branch. Just as she catches herself, the second cable pops and whips overhead, sizzling by with a high-pitched hiss that she knows in her stomach she's lucky to be hearing instead of feeling. Now, screaming curses flow from her open mouth. Unaware of what she's even saying, part of her refuses to believe what is so. It's been a mistake, a horrible mistake. Half snags the remaining cable with the ascender clip and begins scuttling as fast as she can toward the far tree. When the last line goes, she wants to be as close as possible to that big stick to minimize the swing. Hyped senses let her see the assassin in close-up as the woman begins spraying the final cable. Half can even read the detail on the can. Compressed freedom. Shit. Distilled fear clearly lets her mind admire the simplicity of it all. Interesting technique. A couple of seconds more and the last cable pops, pitching half down sharply enough to drive her stomach through her throat. As she drops towards terminal velocity and becomes for a moment an object of pure geometry, obeying only the impeccably cruel logic of angles and momentum, velocity and impact, half begins to spin. Awareness refuses to abandon her, allowing a moment of amazement verging on wonder at the acceleration attached to the observation of her own demise. Nearing the nadir of the drop, the mass of the other tree approaching through every rotation dazzles her imagination. It closes in, and she realizes at the last moment that miraculously, she's not going to smear into it. She misses the rough stock bark of trunk by centimeters, passing close enough to feel the soft whip of bark fuzz caress her forearm. 
At the far end of her swing, she slapped crunches onto some branches, rashing the piss out of her forearms and legs, dissipating inertia to the point that when she falls back toward the trunk, she can grab a large branch. After a moment, she stabilizes against the tree. A tangle of severed cable swings wildly, slapping against the trees and tangling with themselves. Once she's stabilized and realizes she's relatively unhurt, half moves directly past the time waste of anger, shock, and sense of betrayal directly to the collect your wits and save your ass right now portion of the program. Slowly, and with the difficulty of a person who's recently recovered from having the wind knocked out of them, she begins the process of ascending the cable tether she's attached to with her ascender. Without foot straps, she has to rely on pure arm strength to pull her up to safety. Above, voices cut into her concentration. The woman who's got the cable is yelling towards someone in the tree half is hanging from. She's telling that someone where half is. A man's voice calls back. Under other circumstances, this might seem reassuring, but half is pretty sure that in this situation, another person involved means worse trouble. Redoubling her effort, she begins hauling down on the ascender with all her strength. Just meters from the top, she glimpses a figure leaning over the platform's edge. Half thinks she recognizes him, but it doesn't make any sense. The man she sees is one of the regional ecotage leaders from the whole Northwest. She'd met him on a couple of occasions up in Seattle the prior year. Use, she yells. Use, hey man, help me. Sure enough, when the man's head turns toward her, it's him. God damn it, she screams as she grasps her air. What the fuck is going on? We're on the same side. For a moment, he just stares directly at her. A world of cool distance, even disdain, lives in his eyes. Instantly, half realizes he is not there to help. More than you know, is all he says. More than you know. He leans down, reaching below the platform, and begins loosening the hex bolt, holding her lifeline in place. This cannot be happening, shouts her mind. Half-friendly, she begins shedding anything heavy she can from a rack. Each piece that comes to hand, she shanks that uses exposed head. Accuracy from this precarious position is unlikely, but she was a star baseball player through college, so she gives it her all. The first piece bounces harmlessly off the wooden decking of the platform. She hucks another, knowing that with each turn of the wrench, her lifeline is getting looser. A grigri fills the palm of her hand, and she weighs it in at a couple of pounds. She hesitates, stabilizes herself as best she can, hefts it in a throwing hand, and flings it upward. This time, her aim is true. The grigri clips shoes in the right temple, and half sees him drop the wrench and slump, kneeling briefly at the edge of the platform like an aerial narcissus before toppling slowly beyond the balance point and plummeting downward, falling dead weight like a bag of sand. His body accelerates in half, scrambles out of the way to avoid being swept off the tree. Wind soothes through his clothes as he sails past, and there is a dark, crunching thud from below as his head hits the branch he's held onto when she first swung over. The impact twists his body violently, and he endovers unevenly off toward the distant ground. Not considering why Hughes was trying to kill her as she renews a desperate scramble for the platform, damage done with each movement and each moment, the cable begins to squeak and angle down. She is rising, scrambling to reach the ledge when the whole thing unravels with a little squeal as the bolt frees itself with a series of sharp jerks, then releases into the air. Half once again drops in free fall. No, no, her angry mind howls refusal, 
echoes through nothingness as she tumbles through the heights. In this eternity of instant, she experiences absolute certainty. It is clear that her refusal to believe can stop all this, bring chaotic worlds into a manageable form. Belief alone possesses the power to reverse truth, unwind fact. All engulfing sound gathers her up and deposits her mind as if it were an object flat on a solid surface. Truth prevails. There is no feeling or sensation being relayed from body to intellect other than a surreal vision of sun as it streams through mist that rise beneath the redwood canopy. The vision demands full attention. Half senses that this image constitutes proof of existence. She realizes that she cannot locate herself within the boundary of this observable world. Vision develops an anesthesia, shudder, spins, becoming a wilted vortex of blood-colored lights whose objective is to reduce its own diameter from a tunnel to a pinprick of shrinking swirls and spirals. Sun-dappled wood slips. Darkness maw savors the final flick of light warming the glade of her imagination before swallowing whole of vision, consciousness, and all that remains of self. with chapter 5 of Criminal Magic. If you are enjoying this podcast, please leave a review or tell a friend who might like it as well.